You're listening to The Pet Factor, news on pet health, wellness, and the latest in veterinary medicine. Hi, welcome to our next podcast of The Pet Factor. I'm Dr. Jim Hosek. I'm Brittany. And this week we're going to be talking about the annual parasite testing that we recommend for our pets as part of their wellness. Mm-hmm. Um, there's two major tests that we're doing on the animals. The one that we ask for everybody is going to be the stool sample. Yep. We call it a fecal parasite screening. Mm-hmm. And you know, people bring in their, the poop and they go, well, this is the check for heartworms. It's not. It's to check for intestinal parasites. Yep. Still looking for worms, though. Yes. Um, and we want them on cats and dogs. Indoor animals, outdoor animals, it doesn't really matter because all these animals are susceptible to these parasites. Mm-hmm. We did a fun one the other day. We had to do a fecal on a bearded dragon. So that was a fun one. <laughs> he wow. had uh, coccidia. So that's interesting. Coccidia yes. is one of those parasites that can affect cats and dogs too, but they're species specific. So the bearded dragon coccidia aren't going to affect our cats. So that's good. Um, so when we bring in a stool sample, we we ask people usually we'll tell them to bring it in for their wellness exam. We don't need a huge piece. So if you're bringing in your stool sample to your vets, just a little bit, like the tip of your thumb, is what I tell people. Yeah, we usually get like a pound or two, which <laughs> we appreciate the effort. It's really yeah. nice, but <laughs> but one of the things we do do is we look at what the stool looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, especially with tapeworms, you can actually see the parasites on the stool, yeah. or you can see roundworms will pass on the stool. Mm-hmm. Um, I had uh, one client thought there was worms in their dog's stool. I looked at it, and it's these little white circly things. It turned out it was rubber bands from your kid's braces. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they swallow a lot of things. Um, but then we do a, a procedure called a fecal flotation. Mm-hmm. And we actually mix the uh, stool sample up with a sugar solution. And the sugar solution is so dense, it causes these eggs to float to the top. We collect them on a microscope uh, cover slip, and then we look at that under the microscope to see if we find any eggs. It takes about five, ten minutes to get a good flotation. Mm-hmm. You can get a more accurate result doing a centrifuge technique. Um, and if we're really concerned about that, we'll send it off to the lab for that. But this will pick up most of the parasites. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because we don't see any worm eggs doesn't mean they don't have them. No. Uh, you can have parasite infestations that will have uh, no eggs being produced at certain times of the infection. So we may want repeated samples if we're worried about it, but on the routine screenings, we're going to pick up about 90% of them, I think, mm-hmm. uh, doing those samples. Yeah, even if the pets aren't showing symptoms, you still find them. I had one the other day, the owner just came in for a dog park application, right. and the dog had hooks, and I was like, stools have been completely firm, dog's fine. But they have, I saw the worm eggs, right. they were in there. The the most successful parasites are the ones that live well with the host and don't mm-hmm. make them sick so that they can they can They live longer, yeah. Right. Um, one of the other tests we'll sometimes do, there's this really neat uh, ELISA test, so it uses antibodies to look for a particular parasite called Giardia. And we can spot Giardia on our flotations, but sometimes they're really hard to spot. They're very mm-hmm. tiny cysts. Uh, this set, test is a much more sensitive. So anytime we get a, a stool that's loose or blood or mucus, yeah. we're going to check for Giardia. Um, and a, a big reason, we're going to talk about more of this uh, next week when we talk about internal parasites, but they can affect people too. And so we don't want our, uh, our animals to be transmitting these diseases to people. Um, what we, we should be doing this every year for every animal, mm-hmm. cats and dogs. Um, puppies and kittens are a little bit different because we're going to be wanting to check them every time they come in. Yeah, because even if we get a negative one, they're still 
more than likely positive or something. Right, and if you get a parasite that takes eight to twelve weeks to start producing eggs, and you got an eight-week-old kitten, mm-hmm. uh, if just as negative the first time doesn't mean it'll be negative the next time. Yeah. Uh, so we want to do that. Okay, and then when we we're doing these stool samples, we may not pick up some parasites. Um, tapeworms are one we talked about a little bit earlier. You can see it on the stool, but sometimes you'll see it on the hair around the, the animal's rear end. Mm-hmm. Um, Tapeworm egg weights just don't float well in there, and they oftentimes don't release the eggs until the, the tapeworm segments left the, the animal's body. And the uh, tapeworms require an intermediate host, so oftentimes we see these after a flea infestation. So it's a good idea if your pet has had fleas to keep an eye on their butt to see if you see those tapeworm segments coming on out. The other test that we'll do on every dog every year, um, there's a couple versions of it. There's the 4Flex, which is the one we have. There's the 40X, which is produced by IDEX. And this is a uh, blood test. So we get a couple drops of blood from the dog, mm-hmm. and we're checking for four different infections. The primary one is the heartworm. Yeah. We, heartworms was something we've checked for for years and years. We've added in three tick-borne infections, Lyme disease, anaplasmosis, and ehrlichia. Now, these are very common tick-borne infections we see in this area. Mm-hmm. So. When we're doing this blood sample, we're not only checking to make sure the pets have been on good heartworm prevention, we're checking if they've been on good flea and tick prevention as well. A lot of times they may not show symptoms when they're initially affected with Lyme disease or all these other things. Um, so we can detect that before that's the case. That tells me more than anything that the animal is not getting good tick protection. If they are sick and we happen to turn this up positive, it means that could be causing the infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lyme disease in particular, if we get a dog with a fever and joint pain, we're going to check maybe a Lyme test just yeah. to see if they've got Lyme disease as a possible uh, source of that pain. Mm-hmm. Um, heartworms are one of those uh, things that it can take seven months after they've been bitten by a mosquito before they'll turn positive on the heartworm test. Yeah. The heartworm test is actually looking for the uh, proteins from the adult worms in their heart. So when the larvae are living around the mosquito bite where the dog gets bitten, they're not going to be able to detect it. So that's important, especially in a dog that's just starting on heartworm prevention, to make sure we do that test a year later because the test we did right before we started them might not have picked up that infection. Mm-hmm. It's going to show up negative. And then there's, with the monthly pills, there's another problem. You know, we people might forget to give the pill. Yeah. Or the dog might uh, not eat it mm-hmm. or might eat it and throw it up outside and they don't know. And you don't know. So this is going to pick up the infection before it starts to make the dog sick. Um, the Lyme disease is another one that's checking for the actual antigens or the proteins from the bacteria. So it tells us that the animal is infected. Mm-hmm. Um, we see probably about two or three a month now. We see a lot more. And we'll talk about this more when we talk about external parasite prevention, but the year-round parasite prevention has really made a big dent in that. Um, the the thing about Lyme disease, once they get it, it can sit around in their body for years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do get a lot of, because um, I think we talked about it before with the vaccine. Um, right. So even if they are covered with it, it does show up positive. Um, but at least then they're protected from it instead of just going up positive and being painful. Yeah, it. one of the uh, veterinarians I listened to, they said they, they think the reason dogs get sicker that are Lyme positive is that they're still getting exposed, they're still mm-hmm. getting bitten. So it's the overall getting reinfected over and over, over, that, and over. that tends to make them more sick. Mm-hmm. Um, with the anaplasma and ehrlichia, we're, we're finding antibodies. So if they're positive for that, means they were infected at some point, but it can cause a flu-like symptoms. It can make them be a rundown, fever, mm-hmm. diarrhea, things like that. So if they're sick, if we will do a blood test on them, if it looks like their white cell counts a little bit low or platelets are low, we know the parasites are affecting them, we'll put them on some antibiotics. Mm-hmm. 
all those uh, tick-borne infections are pretty easily treated with antibiotics. Heartworm disease, one of those things far easier to prevent than treat, and again, we'll talk about that later. Um, so these, and these recommendations are, are supported by the American Heartworm Association and the Companion Animal Parasite Council. There's two groups that study the parasites and make these recommendations for veterinarians. Um, certainly with the new 12-month heartworm inj uh, preventative injectable, if you're getting that shot every 12 months, your chances of getting heartworm are pretty small. Mm -hmm. But there have been cases of heartworm resistance to the heartworm preventatives, particularly the uh, once-a-month ones like HeartGuard. Yeah. Um, and that started in the Mississippi Valley, um, but it's spreading throughout the country. And as dogs move around the country, they can bring these parasites with them. So the annual um, testing is also a surveillance program for us to look for this resistance and spot it uh, as soon as it it's starts to show up. Yeah. And then the other important thing about the tick panel, uh, knowing that a dog's been exposed to Lyme disease, is their owner is probably being exposed too. Mm -hmm. So if they're not feeling well, we tell, hey, your dog's been sick. If you've ever noticed any rashes, make sure you get yourself out or make sure you're doing good tick protection yourself. Well, and then the good thing with that testing, a lot of owners will say, oh, my dog only goes outside to do his business or whatever. Right. There's no way there are ticks or things outside. Yes, there's wildlife, especially people who live next to the parks and reserves or things like that. Deers are walking through. You have squirrels. You have skunks. You have everything even if you don't see them they're there right there's a chance your dog is going to get something or there's even yeah. a chance that you know you could have a tick on you and you don't know it they, they could fall off a of flying bird mm -hmm. like ticks are everywhere just because they're your pets in your backyard yeah. doesn't mean they're safe and protected from right and anything. i've used this i've had animals test positive and said mm -hmm. you need to start the preventative your animals being exposed mm -hmm. so the, uh, these annual screenings um, are very important um, the fecal test for everybody, the heartworm test for the dogs. There is a heartworm test for cats. It's not as sensitive, so we don't usually recommend testing all cats. But certainly for the dogs, it's going to be something you do. Whether mm -hmm. Even if you live on the 10th floor of an apartment building, yeah. um, your mosquitoes can get up there and your animal can be exposed. You could bring in ticks on yourself, on your yeah. body, and they can go feed on the animals as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's move on to our pet health news. Um, so I got three stories here that I thought are pretty interesting. Two of them kind of tie together. Uh, but the one is just this uh, news story that I found. Um, let me get this. Talking about uh, the obesity rate in America's cats. <laughs> so they, you know, uh, they say probably 40 to 50% of people in America are overweight or obese. Mm -hmm. This is the same with our cats. Yeah. We're making our cats fat. Um, and uh, this is a study done by the Virginia Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine. And so they kind of uh, were looking at um, what is the reasons these animals are getting fat, and they decided to put some of them on some programs to get them to lose weight. So we use a body condition score that helps us determine whether a cat is fat. So there's a couple things you can look at in your own cat to tell if they're overweight. So uh, when we go to feel on their chest, we're going to see if we can feel their ribs, uh, not see them. Mm -hmm. If you're seeing the ribs, then they're starting to get what we call cachexic or, or underweight. Um, they should have a shape to their waist. So they, the waist should taper in by their hips, and when you look at them from the side, it should taper up. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't have a flat back. That's right. what we call a tabletop. That's getting right. chunky. If the cat is uh, sits on the table and it's wider than it is long, that's yeah. a fat cat. That's a fat cat. But you can also feel it, too. You can feel the, the layers of fat over their, their body. You can mm -hmm. see it behind their heads. Some of them are very obvious, but some of them may not be. Um, it's very important, uh, part of the annual exam is to have your cat's weight checked yeah. and look for sudden increases or gradual increases even that may indicate a problem. 
We don't usually see thyroid disease as a reason for cats. It's usually dietary. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a couple things that they recommended um, for keeping the cats fit and getting them to lose weight. Um, I'm always recommending putting them on a canned food diet if they're yeah. overweight. Um, the biggest problem, I think, is the carbohydrates. Um, they can't handle that. Yeah. Dry food's about 20 30% carbohydrates. Canned food's anywhere from 0 to 10%. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem with dry food, most people think you fill the bowl twice a day and walk away, and right. that's not good. You fill a full bowl or a cup full for a cat. We know for at least half the cats that doesn't work. No. <laughs> no, not at all. For some cats, it does. And I've certainly seen the cats that come in and are 7 pounds every year. They eat whatever. They usually fill the bowl, and they do fine. But a lot of cats don't do that. So the problems that, that can lead from obesity are the same that we see in people. Um, joint disease, mm -hmm. um, heart disease, diabetes, mm -hmm. especially type 2 diabetes. We're going to talk about that in one of our other articles here. And if we have cats with breathing issues because they have all that extra weight on right. their chest. Yeah, you, you, it affects the ability to get air in and mm -hmm. out. So uh, toys are a way to do that. Um, um, not loving them to death by giving them treats mm -hmm. um, are a big thing. And you, it's amazing how many calories can be in some of these treats. Yeah. Or getting, if they're going to get a treat, make them work for it. Right. Our clinic cat, when he wants a treat, we make him run down the hallway, which is probably a good 10 feet for him to get one right. treat. And we're going to talk about that more in the tech tip, so we got some ideas on, on uh, keeping cats mm -hmm. fit and enriching their lives. Getting them to eat vegetables. You know, vegetables like green beans and things like that, some cats will eat them and they can add and fill them up without adding calories to their thing. And this thing I found out is that the Guinness Book of World Records got rid of their world record for the fast cat because they thought it was promoting pet obesity. The last cat to have the record was named Himmy, a 46-pound Australian cat. So uh, there was one cat they're talking about in this article. He was so big he had to be wheeled around in a baby stroller. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So it, you know, maybe kind of um, funny to see that or whatever. Or the cats may seem like they're really happy, but um, it just leads to shortened lives and a lot of health problems down the road. Um, the next the new story I want to talk about is a study done out of Denmark that talks about feline diabetes and the bacteria in the intestinal tract. Mm -hmm. So they actually know in people uh, with diabetes, type 2 diabetes, that the bacteria in their intestinal tract are affected by this disease or the, the bacteria may actually be causing the disease. There's a correlation. So they wanted to see if the same was in cats because if they was, then they could use cats as a way to study this. And they did find that there was a, a difference. They looked at three groups of cats, uh, some diabetic cats, some healthy cats that were overweight and some healthy cats that were lean. And then some graduate student had to get their poop and, and get the bacteria out and check the DNA. And they found some significant changes that were mirroring the, what they were seeing in people. There was one group of bacteria that has decreased in the diabetic cats, and decreases in these were uh, correlated to an increase in fructosamine levels in the blood. And fructosamine is a protein-bound form of sugar that um, can measure average blood sugar over a couple weeks. It has a very long half-life. Um, there's another um, uh, type of bacteria that were increased, and they were responsible for causing low-grade inflammation in the body, and that also leads to insulin resistance. So the cells, the body's still producing insulin in type 2 diabetes, but the cells just don't respond to it as well. And the third group of bacteria are what are called butyrate-producing bacteria, and the butyrate is, uh, impairs uh, infl inflammation as well, um, and it's been associated definitely in people with the um, insulin resistance. So it's another thing that contributes to that. So the, the important thing here is that we can use big cats as a way to study diabetes in people, but bacteria in our intestinal tract are playing a big role in our health. 
you hear people taking probiotics. We use probiotics in dogs a lot. All the time. Um, and I think uh, we're becoming more aware of this. We're finding out that uh, antibiotics we take for other things may be killing off a lot of good bacteria mm -hmm. and inducing some problems in people. Um, they've been using treatments uh, with probiotics and even fecal transplants where they'll take stool from healthy animals yes. or people and trans transplanted into other people mm -hmm. kind of a weird thing to go on but this is really pretty interesting and it may come to you know treatments for diabetes where we give them probiotics rather than insulin mm -hmm. and get their diabetes under control mm -hmm. so that's a really interesting one that we're following that'll be uh, interesting to see down the road um the last story I want to talk about is um, it was just a, a review article done by some veterinarians at the University of Illinois talking about a condition we'll see rarely in little dogs, but it's um, some immune-mediated group of, of central nervous system diseases, and uh, they're called meningoencephalitis of unknown etiology, or MUE for short, MU. And there's a, they break them up into three groups. Uh, we have. Um, uh, granulomatous meningoencephalitis, GME, uh, necrotizing leukoencephalitis, NLE, and a necrotizing meningoencephalitis, NME. And they're pretty well, the way you're gonna diagnose these is looking at the physical symptoms, which can include seizures, mm -hmm. muscle tremors, blindness, um, a head tilt and dizziness, or, or walking in circles even, um, or in severe cases, they can have uncontrolled pain or even paralysis. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times when we have an animal present with uh, unusual neurologic symptoms, we're going to look for some metabolic or um, infectious cause for that. If we can't find that, then we may be looking at a, a patient that's suffering from MUE. Hmm. The definitive diagnosis is an MRI scan, which can find the lesions in the brain. If we can't do an MRI scan, we could sometimes say we rule out everything else and go ahead and treat for them anyways because it's not going to do any, any harm. Uh, and it might be potentially helpful. It's most commonly seen in a lot of these toy breeds of dogs. They, uh, they see it in pugs, hmm. Yorkies, but we can see it in any breeds of dogs. And, but female dogs do seem to be more affected than male dogs. And it's usually about five years of age is when it starts to show up. So this is not something that's going to show up in an older animal. They've not been able to find any infections that are associated with these, so they believe it's an immune-mediated process. And maybe it has something to do with the, the gut bacteria, too, because they did find that there were changes in the gut bacteria in people um, that had, uh, or sorry, in dogs that had, uh, had this thing compared to normal dogs. So this is another thing, like with the diabetes thing, showing that, that there's a correlation between the bacteria in your gut and certain illnesses. And maybe someday they'll be able to diagnose you by doing a stool sample. Um, so the uh, if we do diagnose MR uh, MUE in a, in a dog, there's uh, things we can do for it. What we're going to try and do is suppress the immune reaction because this disease is because of the immune system overreacting and causing problems. Yeah. So steroids are, are the most common thing. Um, and depending on the presentation and the location of the disease, um, the animals might live anywhere from a few weeks to a few months to a couple of years. Mm. Um, so if it's just spinal cord lesions, those have the best prognosis. If it's a simple lesion in the brain, a single lesion, then you're looking at about four months of survival. Mm. Um, if you've got multifocal disease where they got a lot of symptoms, we may only be talking a couple of weeks at that point. Mm. Yeah. So this is something that, you know, um, we don't see that often. We don't diagnose that often, but it's, it's out there. And the thing that really interests me is that, is that correlation with the intestinal microbiome, with those intestinal bacteria. And 
it's just I, I see these stories all the time. I hear about you know probiotics and all these things and all the diseases that you can kind of correct by uh, adding these to diets and just wondering how much of it's there. And then it also makes me say, okay, if I'm going to prescribe antibiotics, are they really needed? Because I don't want to be messing up some dog's intestinal tract and maybe inducing some of these diseases down the road. All right, that's it for the pet health news, and that brings us to the case of the week. Betty. Miss Betty. All right. (laughs) So Betty came in a few days ago, and she had been uh, around another dog who managed to scratch a big cut into her nose. Mm -hmm. And it happens. Dogs get into fights. They they do this. Mm -hmm. The nose is, uh, as I found out, a very unusual tissue here. So, uh, Betty is not the kind of dog that will let you kind of look at her without sedation. She's usually fine in the room. She's not growling, but if you try and mess around with her face, she gets a little bit scared. So, we sedated her. She gets very anxious. And I was able to close this up really well. Um, We did a subcutaneous closure, put some uh, very slowly absorbing sutures in there so it would be in there a while, put a little bit of surgical glue on the skin to keep it from being a problem and uh, instructed the owner to wear have Betty wear her e-collar mm-hmm. cone of shame yes and Betty wore this religiously according to the owner but came in yesterday with uh, a little spot on the tip of the nose that had opened up and I said well it looks like she's licking her nose mm-hmm. and causing that so that's something I hadn't taken into account when dogs they can't scratch it but they got the they tongue right lick. there mm-hmm. they can lick so it was like one or two millimeters of a little red spot. I said, you know what? If that's all she's doing, it's going to be fine. <laughs> it's not all she did. No. And then the next yeah. day. The next day she came in, she had licked the whole thing open. Whole thing open. She just tore it apart, and there was a piece of tissue there that was devitalized. Mm-hmm. So we put in some really good, strong sutures across there. They're going to be itchy. She's going to lick those. If she yeah. ties those with her tongue, I'm going to you know, give her a Houdini award or something because that's just amazing. Yeah. But um, make sure um, when your pets have incisions that the dogs can lick, that they can't get to them. Mm-hmm. Because just licking at a knot long enough sometimes unties it. Yeah. And in her case, she aggravated the tissue so much that she irritated the tissue. She pulled the, the subcutaneous sutures out oh, of that tissue. Yeah. Just by pulling on the tissue with her tongue. And those tongues are pretty rough. Mm-hmm. Well, and then like the mouth isn't... I don't, people always say dogs' mouths are cleaner. They're not. They're licking things in the yard. They, you know, lick their own private parts, and right. then they go and lick their nose and their mouth and things like that. So then that's also reintroducing more bacteria. So you have another infection or something there, and that's just fighting two birds. It's, it's, it's their natural instinct to lick their wounds. Yeah, it's, there is a protein in their saliva that helps wounds heal, but there's so many other bad things in yes. there. It's far better to let them <laughs> let us take care of the wounds than their tongue. Mm-hmm. It's it's a little bit better uh, care there. Um, so uh, we'll see Betty how Betty's looking next week, and if there's any new to report, we'll fill yep. you in on that. Okay, all right. Let's move on to tech tips. Yep. Uh, this week uh, we've got some tips on uh, enrichment ideas for the cats mm-hmm. that not only keep your cats happier and healthier, but keep them fit. Yeah, ties in with that obesity story. So, uh, what are some of the things that uh, people can do for their cats at home? to make their lives more interesting and, and happier. Well, one thing is switching just dry food, which is high in calories, to wet food. Wet okay. food comes in different flavors or different textures, um, you know, is lesser in calories. And in the long run, it's good for their kidneys too because it's a lot of moisture, a lot of water, and so it's gonna a lot of 
um, water in there, so they're flushing out their kidneys and everything. And mm-hmm. you know, most cats are happier with wet food. You're gonna find out one or two that prefers is dry. If they've been eating dry for a long time, it's sometimes hard to get them introduced to it. It but is. They will eat it eventually. Mm-hmm. And it's it's always better for them. Yeah. Um, another thing would be playing with your cat. Like I know most people think cats are lazy; that all they do is sleep. Not every cat just sleeps all day. A lot of cats like catnip. You can get the catnip balls. You can get um, cat furniture, um, so the scratching poles, the feathers that you can bounce up and down with them, a laser pointer. My cats love the feathers on a string. My cat loves a laser pointer. I ended up getting an um, automatic one because he would just sit there for hours and just play. Like There's this one wall in my house that he just thumps against because the light's there. And he's happy. He's playful. He lost some weight, which is good for him. a drinking fountain. Most people don't think cats with water is something that they're attracted to, but we have a lot of cats that are attracted to the water fountain or the faucet when you turn it on. Right. So they That's have the only way they'll drink. Mm-hmm, they have these water fountains that you know stimulate a fountain. Mm-hmm, a fountain and. Cats love it. They'll sometimes splash around playing it. So, yes, it can get a little messy, but yeah. they're playing. They're Don't happy. Stick their pod there. They yeah, they're so happy. Cool. That's what they want. Yeah. Um, and then just one thing that, you know, it's a little more expensive, but it works a lot. Cat wheels. They're <laughs> I've, not, I've not seen any of these, but I've heard about them. There's so many videos so it's out like there. it's like a hamster wheel for cats. Yes. Oh, there wow. are so many videos out there. I want one for my own cat. They're expensive. But when you look at the videos, they're great. The cats love it. They just literally run around in a circle. There's um, one video where the owner hangs catnip, uh, a toy in front of the cat, and the cat just runs because he's he thinks he's getting a toy, but he's not. You know, there's <laughs> a fake mouse, and the cat wants to go and chase it and catch it. And he's not going to, but it stimulates them. It gets them to run, and yeah. it's the excitement that they need, and right. then they and, sleep. And the cat furniture is, is important. Even if it's just something they can jump up and jump down mm-hmm. from, they're going to be moving around or going to different levels. Mm-hmm. Let them see the environment from different area levels, too. Well, and then it helps, helps with cats who still have their claws because then they're not using your furniture right. or your curtains. They all have their specific area. There are pheromones that you can spray that help keep them more relaxed and so they'll want to you know not overeat because some cats do overeat when they're stressed yeah. um, and that's something most people don't understand it really, cats it really will do. Mm-hmm. Stress. Now my sister-in-law walks her cat with the dog. Yes. The cat <laughs> will follow them around. He insists mm-hmm. on going on the walks with the dogs. How hard is it to get a cat to, to take a walk? Um, if it's a cat who's never been outside, very hard. But you have some cats who, in their mind, are dogs and that they get excited when they see the harness, when they see the leash. Um, we have some cats, when you open a door, they'll just run to the door. My cat, he loves to sit outside on the balcony when we're letting my dogs out to play in the yard. Yeah. He will sit there and he'll watch the dogs and sometimes he'll run back and forth because he's watching them run underneath the balcony. And to me, I'm like, okay, he's one of the dogs. He's playing. Not every cat's going to do that. Some cats forget. Well, an alternative is the cat stroller. Yes. Uh, I've seen people bring their animals in in the stroller. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a really neat idea. Yeah. Um, I used to put the, my cats in a, one of the cages on the wagon. You just wheel them around that, that way. That well, we have, I've seen um, on some houses actually in the neighborhood, some people have cat boxes in windows right and so they're like they almost look like cages Mm -hmm. um but it pretty much looks like a kitty condo and the cat is outside with nature but they're protected right they can watch the birds and Mm -hmm. squirrels and they get excited but the whole idea is 
instead of just sitting in the house and sleeping 20 hours a day, they're interacting with their environment, uh-huh. they're looking things, they're stimulated by the smells, mm-hmm. the odors, the sounds. Keeps so them those out of trouble all sometimes. Things. Um, and then this one looks really neat, teaching your cat using treats. So you've trained, have you trained cats? You know you train dogs. Um, cats not so much. Well, Merlin but will respond to treats. Yeah, he will definitely respond to treats. If you shake a container, he comes running. Um, if that's training. Um, but there are plenty of cat videos out there, yeah. and I've always wanted to try one for Merlin. But you can keep teach your cat to jump through a hoop or even your arms. Wow! And so there are videos where you know you teach a cat to go through the arms hold a treat over it and if you hold a hoop now these cats will jump through hoops or do obstacle courses because they're getting treats merlin he's a little past (laughs) that um but he knows if he runs up and down the hallway he'll get some treats which you know are hallway for a cat he's walking you know 15 you know 20 steps and that's good for him and we usually make him run so we'll take these treats and we'll kind of chuck them down the hallway and we'll make him run after them sometimes you can call it mean but it's to get a little extra exercise we'll pretend to throw one and he'll still chase it it's not down there but then he'll run back towards us because he's like where'd my treat go yeah you need to do another one exactly so he gets some exercise my mom actually had a cat that played fetch she, the cat catch. would it would pick its ball out. Uh, they had to jump on top of the the hutch where they had the balls. So he'd bring mm-hmm. the ball to her, and then she'd throw it. She and could throw it all it. the way across the house, and the cat would bring it back. Mm-hmm. I don't understand that. Um, none of my cats now would ever <laughs> consider doing that. They'd think you are nuts for doing that. But uh, yeah, you'd be surprised how easily trained some cats are, or right. you know, instinctual some cats are. You know, it's their instinct to bring you back their prey, and sometimes that ball is their prey. So you throw it, and they want to bring it back to you. Yeah. yeah, and that's what they do. They bring you the dead mice. Mm-hmm. Um, getting another cat. Now, that may not be the best for all situations, but yeah. that certainly would. I mean, my cats play together. They mm-hmm. chase each other around the house. Sometimes you hear one of them screaming, but then the next second they're sitting on the couch next to each other, grooming each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, grooming each other is one thing. You group, betting your cat, grooming your cat is important for uh, bonding with them. I saw this one thing, you put it in your mouth, it was a giant cat tongue that you used to groom the cats. Yeah, I saw that. I have not tried that no. yet. No. But yeah, I'll put it on my Amazon <laughs> wish list. If someone wants to get that for me, that'd be yes. great. Yes. No. <laughs> so we're going to put a list of these things on our website. So if you want to look out some of these uh, ideas and you didn't have a chance to write them down here in your car or whatever, come check it out at uh, brookfieldvets.com and look in the blog section and then there'll be something in there. Um, so next time... Uh, we're going to be talking about inser- internal parasite prevention. So we talked about the testing, why we're testing for these parasites. So what, it's great if we find them and treat them, but what's the best way to keep them from getting those? Yes, there are heartworms and test the parasites. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's it for this week. I'm Dr. Jim Hosek. I'm Brittany. We'll see you next time. Bye. You've been listening to The Pet Factor with Dr. Jim Hosek and Brittany Reeves.